All right, welcome everyone to the latest episode of the Network Age. I'm Bitchel Ritson here, as always, with my lovely co-hosts Nilrun Marduks and Timluk Meptev, as well as a few extra special guests today from Nation Three. We've got here Luis Quende and Anastasia Belyaeva. Uh, thanks, guys, so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you here. Thank you so much for having us. Really excited for this. Likewise. Yeah, I mean, we're really excited to talk to you guys because I think your project, Nation 3, hits on so many themes that we've discussed in the show from statelessness to um, the ways that technology can impact more than just financial applications, really change the way we're living. So, Luis, I was wondering if before we get into your background, you could give us, you know, the quick summary of what Nation 3 is and maybe why you guys are so excited about it. Yeah, sure thing. So Nation 3 is an online first um, zero tax nation with its own jurisdiction, court and system of law. And so basically what this means is we're creating a new nation state. And the reason this is very exciting is that it's the first time in human history that we can actually create a nation state from scratch that lives on the Internet first. Um, and this means that we can experiment uh, and we can move way faster using both the uh, the growth of the internet and the way of reaching scale of the internet combined with the capital formation of cryptocurrencies and Web3 to launch an experiment with a network state that can accumulate uh, kind of like traction way faster than a land-based state. And this allows us to experiment uh, and to innovate way more than traditional states, which I would say are quite bad at this. Um, and they've been lagging behind so many markers. Uh, and, and we feel that some societies, especially in the West, now are really decaying. And, mm-hmm. and so this is really important. And, and the reason I think um, we are working on this or, or, or kind of like when we got excited by it, um, I think it was actually way back in the day. In my case, it was the first time that I thought when I saw Bitcoin. It was like, all right, this is cool. This allows for communities to <laughs> interact with each other because they can be extremely local um, and they can be very federated, yet they can tap into like this awesome way of uh, transacting with each other. So it just came very naturally, I think. Cool. Yeah, I mean, one thing I appreciate about your project is there's a real sense of history and and being on the frontier and trying to pioneer a new way of interacting and organizing that really has never been done before in the, the history of our species. And I think that provides a good seg to uh, learning a little bit about your guys' history. So I think we can do, um, Luis and then Anastasia, just how do you get involved in the project? Where are you coming from? Maybe even how you guys know each other. Sure. So uh, the, the reason I got into it is kind of like the what I was talking about with Bitcoin. Like I, I knew about Bitcoin first in uh, well first in 2009, but I thought it was a massive scam. And then in 2011, I actually got into it and I read the white paper. And, and for me, it was quite obvious that the biggest application would be to reimagine nation states. And so from there to today, a lot of things have been built that allow for that vision. Because in the beginning, you know, With Bitcoin itself, you cannot really rebuild a nation state. It took Bitcoin, then it took Ethereum, then it took DAOs. And then after you have all of these components, you can do the first kind of like massive scale DAO, which is, I think, a nation state. And so it, it took quite a few years. And for me, like I was into into Bitcoin in the beginning, uh, a bit of a Bitcoin maxi for some time, uh, founded a couple of startups in the, in the Bitcoin realm. And then in 2016, started Aragon, which is the uh, today still the main DAO platform on Ethereum that has some uh, heavyweights like Lido or Curve uh, or Decentraland uh, city users and secures billions of dollars in AUM. And so we were quite like pioneers in, in just making DAOs happen and, and today is the, the largest platform. And I feel that Nation 3 is a very logical evolution because I one of the reasons that I founded Aragon was to actually allow for nation states to be built as DAOs. So it just feels like a very logical continuation. And on my side, um, I, I actually, my journey starts in, uh, in Crimea, which uh, is a street gen that many people now know about, but very few did back in the day. Uh, it used to belong to Ukraine, is now Russian. And I think I kind of felt firsthand the 
inefficiencies that states can have and, and how badly that can impact the lives of people on a, on a daily level. So um, I come from there and then uh, my um, kind of foray into Web3 started with a VC fund. Um, I come from a venture capital background, so I uh, co-founded a fund called Fabric uh, VC uh, based out of London. And it was one of the earliest funds in, in Europe investing in the, in the space uh, since 2017. And, um, and then at one point, Luis and I, we started kind of like brainstorming and thinking on what is the next meaningful thing? What is the kind of logical continuation of how all of this Web3 rails that we're creating can actually meaningfully impact the, um, the practical life that people have at a, at a daily level? And it became obvious that it's using the DAO structures, it's using the, using the DeFi rails to try and reinvent the, the nation state itself. Uh, thanks, guys, so much. That's really interesting. I think I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, how Nation 3 is going to work on a practical level. I think it, it's such a big vision and it's, it's really exciting that sometimes it can be hard to conceptualize. What does it mean for something to be a, a digital nation state for something to be borderless you mentioned court systems i know on uh, in the nation three manifesto there's a lot of talk of citizenship so i, I think if you could give us a bit of a, a a more concrete picture of what that looks like i'd be really interested yeah of course so there's multiple approach i guess to what has become known as the the network state thesis that balaji pioneered and and a few others have talked about um, there's a couple of different ways to reach that goal and we see some projects are taking the, the physical approach and trying to establish either special economic zones or um, somewhat of crypto cities and try to build very cool infrastructure using all the Web3 tech that we have available while others are trying to focus more on the community side and, and build these uh, internet-based communities with the idea of creating them around a shared set of values um, and the belief that these values are what will form a, a state identity, a, a nation state identity. So what we are doing is, um, is, I guess, closer to the latter, but what we have realized is a, a major missing piece between creating a community online and that becoming a sovereign nation state is that you need to have a system of law. So that was uh, the big realization that we, that we had. Um, and, um, and and I think, you know, creating a, a system of law is something that enables everything else that uh, that comes after it. If, if you're able to have a, a, a trusted, efficient um, system of law, constitution, and, and a way to enforce it, then that enables others to create services, products that ultimately uh, service the individuals at the end. And, and this is the... Um, the thing that we're trying to to build. So this is kind of the approach and how gradually um, how gradually it's um, it, it will turn into the the nation state. Yeah, thanks, Anastasia. That's like very helpful. And I want to know. Uh, so one of the reasons we had you guys on is that at least I am very skeptical of the physical sort of let's call it network uh, state approach where you try to like, you know, get a special economic zone or have a piece of land because it feels very much like LARPing or just trying to do, um, you know, the same thing as nation states, but in like, you know, <laughs> with, with a lot more degree of difficulty. So I'm very sympathetic to your approach. One thing I want to sort of lock down before we go further is, is this more about, I guess, creating a community that depends on a system of law where that's the main like that's the main service and you're sort of outside of the nation state framework altogether or are you trying to like fully replace certain nation state services on the lines of like let's say you know passports recognition by other nation states things like that yeah it's a good question like the main thing or like the, the main belief that we are having is uh, nation three should be helpful by itself without needing recognition from other nation states or without even having land. Um, the services it provides should be helpful and should provide value to citizens. And so from that point of view, we're really focusing a lot on the on the system of law. Um, and when it comes to recognition from other states, um, I've been always thinking, and, and I thought the same with DAOs, like you don't really need the incumbent to recognize you for your contributions to the meaningful. It could be equivalent, I guess, as maybe like TV networks um, acknowledging that the internet 
exists and that is important um, as as a prerequisite for internet to thrive. And that wasn't really a that wasn't really how it happened. The internet made TV to a large extent uh, just obsolete. And I think here we're going to see the same thing. We don't need to wait for the confirmation of incumbents um, that they are okay with what we're doing because most of them will not be okay. Um, and the same happens with... Oh, of course. Yeah, and the same with software. It happens with, uh, with anything really, right? And so um, from my perspective, I, I do believe that it, it makes more sense to just focus on great and value. But I want to make the question a little bit more, like drill into that and make it a little bit more practical because, you know, there's the whole, you know, you might not be interested in X, but X is interested in you. And when we talk about, like, let's say, for countries that care about where you're resident for the purposes of taxation, let's say you're Canadian and they want you to see other residents. And if you say your residence is nation three, you know, they're, they're still going to want their taxes. Whereas if you said your residence was Dubai, um, they wouldn't. Or like for another maybe more... Pra- um, immediate example, like right now, Nilrun is in El Salvador uh, working hard on stuff related to like their digital asset laws, where they're saying that, you know, digital assets aren't securities, which of course is like very cool and actually can work uh, specifically because they're a nation state. So I guess my question is, are you, when you're, when you're talking about doing this in parallel, does that mean that there's a lot of areas that you initially don't try to compete on and you're mostly trying to go with this legal system one as the initial main differentiator or am I missing something there? It depends a lot on the time frame that you're looking at. So in the early days right now, mm. we are, we're not trying to compete with the nation states. We're trying to provide a service for those who are inherently online and who don't need the uh, the nation state services in the in the first place so our our immediate user base and and the immediate target group is is DAOs, is uh contributors to DAOs and and the web3 community and what we're trying to do is service those groups in a way where whatever interactions that they do in within web3 they can do without having to create legal wrappers or having to go through complex processes that are associated with the traditional legal system. And in a sense, that doesn't really compete with the legal system of the traditional states at this point in time, but that allows us to gain the critical mass of users and value within the ecosystem, as well as test out the products. And then later on, we'll start offering services that do probably compete to some extent. Um, and um, but but it's obviously going to take time, right? And and at some point we'll start negotiating um, certain aspects, probably with the existing nation states on, uh, for example, uh, mutual tax recognition and stuff like that. But that's uh, a couple of years down the line. Mm, yeah, really interesting. And so I'm curious, like for that first use case, so is it like sort of digital, like solely? interactions that are happening on the internet so like for example if i'm hiring contractors maybe in another country is that is that like the core um use case or like where can you kind of like walk through the exact use case of how people would use your platform now yeah so we actually came up with with it after some kind of like needing it ourselves for nation three so we have uh this anonymous contributor in the nation three community since pretty much launch mm. um and uh, she's completely anonymous um and participates a lot in in like core developer aspects of the project and the problem that many doubt surfaces as a doubt you want to make sure that you engage contributors and that you decentralize power and that you like onboard um people that are that are great but at the same time, you are effectively trusting random internet anons with funds, with responsibilities, and so forth. And so today, mm-hmm. there is really no way that you can have the guarantees that legal agreements give you without having to establish those legal agreements in a given jurisdiction with all the drawbacks that that has. Um, and obviously, those agreements are not internet native by any means. Uh, you need like notary publics. Um, they are obviously enforceable in the physical realm, but they don't have a claim in crypto assets. And so for DAOs, that just doesn't make sense. Uh, you want something that is internet native and, and crypto native. And so the use case for us is actually quite simple, is we want to enter uh, agreements that have legal guarantees and that can be um, disputed in the case of a, of a breach. And then that someone else can lose some collateral that they have into the agreement, so some economic value, if they misbehave. It's really as easy as that, um, and that enables a bunch of possibilities. Okay, I see. So it's to get around the kind of inherent issues of having anonymous interactions that are so common in, in the Web3 space, especially. 
Yeah, there's there's exactly there's a lot of that. Like I would say right now, where we see a lot of value is doubt to doubt interactions and also doubt to contributor because those things are completely not covered by the current legal system. One thing I'm wondering about then, and either of you can feel free to answer this, is are you seeing demand for people to put up that kind of collateral for a legal system? Because obviously the big challenge, the, the sort of big competitive advantage that traditional legal systems have is that they can you know, claim an implicit make an implicit claim on your future earnings so that people don't need to... It's basically more capital efficient in that way. So I'm wondering if you're seeing people willing to put down collateral, or is that something that's harder to persuade people are about or that, or that you're working on? I would argue it's actually easier to persuade people because their liability is limited, right? And unlike mm -hmm. in the traditional legal system where there's pretty much no limit to what they can take from you and, and what the consequences can be, uh, they can, they can, uh, you know, it could be up <laughs> all the way to the criminal and, and actually taking right. freedom away. Um, in the in the Nation Three Court case, um, you know exactly how much is at stake, and you know exactly how much is the maximum that can be taken away from you. So that's um, that. I think is a big uh, is a big plus. My question is more right, and that's a, that's a definitely a good theoretical answer. My question is then: Are you seeing any concrete demand for that, or how are you testing whether people will put up that collateral and trying to you know find the product market fit there? So far, it's been mostly around discussions with people and just mm -hmm. having sort of interviews and, and conversations with both DAOs and contributor side of the equation. Uh, but the product is just coming out in the next couple of weeks, so it's not live yet, and we haven't had the chance to, to test it. So pretty much the next few months will be about doing exactly that, testing it and, and verifying the hypothesis that we have with the, um, with the real data. Yeah, I mean, if that hypothesis works out, I'm, uh, I'm extremely interested. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm going to say um, from from before, like something similar that we worked on at Aragon, which was called Aragon Court, um, completely different technical trade-offs and completely different kind of like go-to-market. But um, we saw there was demand uh, in in DAOs for having some legal guarantees. And you can see that today, actually, mm. like, for example, for DAOs today, it's either you go unwrapped and you are a complete sovereign DAO, but then you cannot make sure that proposals that are very clearly criminal don't pass. And then if they pass, then people have real trouble in, in, in places. Um, on the other hand, if you had a system of law in which you couldn't code kind of like the manifesto or guiding values or even like, you know, the things that are completely legal and shouldn't happen under your view, then you don't need that wrapping so much and you can be more sovereign. So just from, from those principles, uh, I saw demand back in the day. And I think now it's even more so with the whole legal crackdown that's been happening. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think I had um, a question about also about enforcement and judging in particular. I think with smart contracts, it's easy to set something up that like, you know, holds funds in escrow and makes a payment out if a very particular thing occurs. But for something where there's a bit more of a gray area and you need some sort of human judgment what how is that how are you going to have those two aspects mesh where there's like you know a human judge and then there needs to be enforced digitally i you know it says in your website that judges have skin in the game and are incentivized to make fair rulings so I, i'm wondering what that process is how you're going to find these judges are they going to receive any sort of payment you know what does that look like yeah. So let me unpack this a couple of different questions in here. So one, sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, step one, I guess, is it's the core offering of the Nation 3 court to offer uh, dispute resolution services on things that are ambiguous and that are not just um, executable by a smart contract alone. So that that's precisely, I guess, where it comes helpful because of the presence of judges and, and humans in the equation and their ability to read actual English uh, language agreements rather than just pure code. Um, so that's one. And then the way that actually works is indeed through, uh, through having one, a, a wider system of law, i.e. a constitution and a subset of laws that fall under it, which create um, kind of a framework that judges can make their decisions based on. And, and, and that gives you as a, as a user uh, a pretty good idea of the direction that a judge would take on a certain case. So they, they kind of help with the interpretation. 
And in terms of the judges themselves, so the process on our end is that we have a panel of judges that are uh, legal professionals. They are in the phase one right now, so they're, they're just lawyers with the experience in dispute resolution. Uh, in the later phases, once we've tested things out and, and are dealing with um, larger capital cases, we aim to actually onboard people who have experience serving in like supreme courts of physical nation states. So that level of um, expertise in, uh, in, in being a judge. And, and those people are the ones who will assess the data, right? So they will see the agreement, they will see the evidence, and all of that will be done in a, uh, in a private way. So we have encrypted communication channels between the judges and the, the parties of the agreement, and they have the opportunity to, to you know, ask each other questions, review it, all of that. And then, yes, so the judges, they have the, um, the highest stake they in the in the system so you know same way as parties lock collateral into an agreement the judges have collateral in their agreement with the DAO and if they misbehave or if they start uh, ruling in malicious ways then that collateral can be slashed um, and either way if there's one judge that is doing something questionable the parties can always uh, appeal the decision to the DAO and and go kind of like above the judges if they think that there's anything unfair that's going on Hmm, really interesting. Uh, a couple of follow-ups. I'm curious, like, will all parties be anonymous during this? And it's mostly relying on collateral and then these judges to make the decision or are parties known to each other? Um, it's a uh, pretty, so in terms of the individuals, the parties to the agreement, it's whatever they choose. Uh, we don't really prescribe whether they have to disclose their identity or, or not. Okay, cool. Um, and then a question around just like, how to deal with existing jurisdictions. I'm curious, like, for example, say a party feels wronged and obviously they, they maybe take the collateral. Um, but what if they go to an existing jurisdiction and say, Hey, this happened to me. Can you, uh, can you enforce, how do you handle that? Yeah. But the, the way here, uh, that we avoid that is in, in the contract that you enter in the nation three jurisdiction, you can just add a clause that the nation three jurisdiction will be the uh, ultimate like um, arbitrator of the of the dispute. Uh, this you can already do in legal in legal documents and it's a common practice all around the world. And then basically you are like um, waiving your rights to go to a to traditional jurisdiction court for for that. So it says that really. Yeah. So that was. It's really interesting on the legal side. Now, I'm also really interested in the some of the services or maybe implicit services that nation states provide um, that aren't like, you know, let's say passports and stuff like that, or even the legal system, which is this like gating function. So people are really, really interested in moving to, let's say, you know, the United States in many cases because of the additional economic opportunity. And that seems like one of the obvious things that could be done in this kind of, you know, nation state DAO. And so I'm wondering to what degree you guys have thought about that, which I think is definitely some, and how you're planning to try to like, you know, make it like this to make nation three have more of a value add by having sort of, let's say economic opportunity there that you can't get elsewhere and like maybe gating it, or I'm interested in what ideas you have there. Yeah, one of the interesting things about having a jurisdiction is it creates network effects. So if you are within the jurisdiction um, and you have some reputation of, you know, basically like entering agreements and not breaching them, then I am more likely to engage with a fellow citizen that has a reputation. Uh, and if I have it too, then, you know, we can enter into agreements. And as it happens in, you know, in, in traditional jurisdictions, you, you have markets that can only flourish and, and emerge. And so we're, we're focusing on creating this system of law to create a trust so that people can interact with each other and create like a, like a free market inside the jurisdiction. One thing that I would like to point out in the case of the U.S., for example, which is a great example of a country that has so many services, which means has a working market with supply and demand uh, that kind of like, you know, complement each other, is that most of the times is what the government doesn't do that makes a flourish. It's not what the government does. And... A lot of the like very left-wing communist um, kind of like leaning countries, and we have some in Europe. They tend to get too much mm -hmm. into the government uh, role and too much into the market. And what they do actually is they completely like uh, screw up um, the demand and supply uh, equilibrium, and then you don't have services because of that. 
let, let me dig in then to some of the, like, that's a good explanation. Um, but when we talk about that U.S. market and how, let's say, in some cases, the government uh, isn't in the way there, those transactions can happen. But we're also talking about people who have often, like, physical proximity. And so, you know, the demand for those services can arise. And I'm wondering in a virtual environment how that happens. Because, like, one of the advantages that physical environments have for this exact type of economy is that, like, you know, you control a city and people move to New York because the money's there. Like, then they set up, like, their various, you know, small service businesses and work in various industries there. And I'm wondering if you guys have any ideas on how to replicate that in a digital context where it seems like you don't get the benefit of like, you know, I can set up a barber shop in New York City because I know there will be people walking by because like, you know, the, the, they, they have to get their hair cut physically. I would actually argue that you do get the same um, proximity in crypto and online mm. era. And the reason here is, for example, I've been always thinking about Ethereum as like the Manhattan of crypto. And then you have different L2s and these different L2s or different even L1s that are connected to Ethereum are like the servers. And so block space there is way cheaper. Um, so you can get basically like the equivalent would be like a bigger house with a, with a, you know, with a yard and, and whatnot. But then to commute, you have to, you know, take the car or the, or the tube or whatever. And it takes a long time, which would, that would be like transaction fees or breaking <laughs> time. Yeah, in, in Manhattan, you're mm -hmm. going to get very small block space. You're going to get a small apartment. It's probably like not going to be the most convenient thing ever. But you get all the, you know, you are where things happen, basically. And so I would argue it's exactly the same thing um, here. It, it's not different in the digital realm, right? When you're in a community where things happen, when you're in jurisdiction where things happen, that has an intrinsic value, per se. And just to add quickly to that, mm. um, I, I would argue that uh, the economic growth on the you know internet businesses is just much much faster than on anything physical so i think in the early days you know if you want to uh, to gain speed and if you want to gain that economic growth faster then uh, you know just doing stuff on the internet is the best bet but then later on once we have physical locations because that is still the intention to establish physical cities and physical mm -hmm. uh, locations then of course these um, these much more local businesses can flourish as well tapping into the wider uh, ecosystem of services and the trust network that Nation Street, Nation Street provides. Yeah, on the on that physical part, I've definitely been like theorizing a lot about how you could encode a city digitally and take all of the various physical services that it provides, like a lot of like you know health and beauty services, um, you know any, any anything related to like people doing stuff physically and sort of be able to. Tell, let people working in those industries know if they move to this place, there will be customers and coordinating that. But going back to the, which is really interesting, but going back to the digital part, I guess what you guys are saying is that there's sort of a limited amount of, let's, we can almost call it like economic bandwidth in, let's say the initial versions of Nation 3 and having proximity to that has like significant economic value. Is that a fair, is that a fair summary? I would say it's like as easy as if you're inside a network, you you can benefit from network effects. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty much like that. Like if, if you're mm -hmm. interacting with a citizen that has track record, um, and you also have a track record, and you know the laws that you are abiding mm -hmm. to, and you know how things work, then you're much more likely to do an agreement with uh, with this fellow citizen than to do it with an anon over the internet without any kind of legal guarantees. No, that's that's a that's a very satisfying answer. And I'm curious, do you see? Are you, are you planning to maybe work with certain jurisdictions? Like we've seen, as you alluded to, Lewis, like a lot of enforcement actions recently. There was Tornado Cash. And then yesterday we had the Bits Lato enforcement, um, which I haven't, you know, actually looked into that deeply yet. But it seemed like another instance of sort of like uh, software getting targeted. So less about sort of central organizations and more of this idea that the U.S. in particular and Europe, I think, to some extent as well, is sort of taking this very hostile view towards um even like just basic infrastructure within crypto so as you know one of that one of the layers of infrastructure within crypto as nation three is kind of positioning itself here as the court system are you going to need perhaps like nation state level protection in the interim until you kind of scale how do you kind of view that yeah i think once um, once we're ready to start looking into special economic zones, I think that's quite interesting, and I think it's a good compromise. And if you think about it in terms of capital formation, the internet and, and crypto is, is so much better, and, and things are really going upwards. When you think about traditional mm -hmm. nation states, though, 
um, things are not looking that bright. I would say especially the West quite in, in, in a decline because in other parts of the world, like things are going up, maybe like slower, maybe it's not that good right now, but it's, you know, it's kind of like a, there's a good outlook. The West is not going that well. So I think some countries are going to be in a situation in like, let's say five years, 10 years on the road, where they probably face bankruptcy. And they can only print more money um, as long as people buy the bonds and kind of like just buy the buy that that money is worth something. When it stops, the you know the 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 party stops and then just everything crumbles. So I think there it is going to be really important to rebuild the the social structures and like the basic services that nation states provide, but in a in a way that is sustainable in a in a way that actually works. And I think network states offer the possibility. And so um, I do think that five, ten years on the road, there's going to be possibilities of partnering up with nation states, with traditional nation states that are going to see this coming, and want to be on the on the good side um, and not on the on the bad one. And I mean, even today we're seeing it, right? Like there are some nation states like Salvador that are seeing very clearly where things are going, and they don't want to, you know, be fighting against the tide for twenty years. They want to actually ride the wave. And we're going to see more and more of this, I think. Yeah, that's that's very interesting, and I think provides a good transition to questions I had about your long-term vision for Nation 3. We've talked a lot about the the court system that is being instantiated, which is really part of the, the first phase of creating, you know, a, a real institution for people to interact with. But what do you think Nation 3 looks like in 5, 10 15 years, what sorts of services does it provide and what does being a citizen of Nation 3 mean for someone in this more long-term future? I would say from, you know, five years from now, um, the jurisdictions will really be working very well and have a significant amount of uh, funds that are secured under it. And obviously, you know, constitutions don't really get tried in a matter of years. It's more like a, you know, hundreds of years. Um, and I'm a fan of some nation states that have managed to um, survive with their checks and balances and structures for literally hundreds of years. Like the U.S. Constitution is one of the examples that are, that are quite quite shocking. Um, but yeah, like five years on the road, I think that's to be completely proven. And then when you get into like, you know, the five, 10 year horizon, then I think you need to start talking about, right, how can we take all of our learnings that we have from the from the internet and kind of like take it into into the physical realm and then you start kind of talking about special economic zones and so forth there you start having uh you start giving more value to the passport in the sense that maybe you can travel with it and you can actually like have your tax residency um in one of these special economic zones that are powered by by nation three and then of course like you know 20 years down the road um I would love to have infrastructure there and then actually live there. There's a difference, right? Like first you can um, have everything online and have this jurisdiction. Then you can have this jurisdiction that also has some kind of like physical um, physical realm uh, penetration and kind of like a, a network of states in which you can base your tax residency. But ultimately, after all of that, you want a place that you mm. want to live in. And for, for me, that is the ultimate angle. Like, let's just make and build what we like to to see in terms of living. I, I think that raises a question for me, I guess, for both of you personally, like what what is this place you want to live in like? And are these these values that you're describing worth the trade-offs of potentially, you know, living in places that you don't have physical communities or or families? I think that this is something that I wrestle with a lot as as someone who's really rooted in the place I live, but have values that are geared towards a, a lot of what you've described as nation within Nation Three. And how do you think that people will balance that that question of um, you know where they wanting to merge where they come from and where they want to go? I actually think it's much easier to find people who are aligned with you in terms of values. Um, when those people move to a place for the same reasons that you have moved to a place, rather than just by the mere fact that they were born somewhere and they didn't really choose it, right? Because it's very hard. When you're just born in a place and you're tied together by a nationality, that doesn't mean that you share the same values. Um, but when you choose a place that you want to call your home, that typically means that you have made some very similar trade-offs. So I think to an extent that it will actually make you 
surrounded by people that are much more like-minded. For us, I think, and I'll probably speak for on behalf of both of us, you know, some of those values include um, kind of like alignment with, with nature and, and much more um, consciousness when it comes to, to preserving that. So things like, you know, things that annoy you every single day when you're around, at least, you know, in Europe, is seeing these cars with massive exhaust into the, <laughs> into the atmosphere, uh, seeing materials used in, in building, in food production, wait, wait, whatever. We're, we're, compl- we're, complaining, we're complaining about Europeans being the one with, like, big, big cars. This is good. I like, I like this. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, you, no, you guys have seen my truck, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of these things, it just sucks, right? Like the fact that today all the materials that we use everywhere are mega toxic. Uh, the fact that all of the things that we you know, get into the atmosphere are just shortening the lifetime that we have here on Earth. Like all of these things, I think, need to be fixed. But, you know, together with that comes efficiency. It's just, you know, cities and, um, and communities where things run in a way that is efficient and makes sense and where you don't need to... Um, you know, wait for hours to get something done and get drowned in bureaucracy every time you need to deal with any um, any appointment or, or whatever might come at you. It's, you know, I guess it's it's a combination of smart design of cities in terms of the physical infrastructure um, that is integrated natively into a digital infrastructure where all of these things can be abstracted away and you can just actually focus on enjoying and living and, and doing the things that are meaningful to you rather than dealing with the admin stuff and, and things that come your way. Mm. Yeah, ultimately, imagine like imagine that the nation state, that the main question they would ask you is not, um, are you going to pay your taxes? It would be, are you finding uh, belonging? Are you finding meaning in this place? Like, for me, that would be the big angle if we can shove that out. Yeah, if the, if the place you're living actually like wants you to be thriving... Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've thought some about it just having nomaded for a while. Um, and I've kind of seen a few things. One is sort of a lot of, you know, the nation states are going physical first. Tim Luck alluded to this earlier. Um, you know, an example that comes to mind is like Praxis that talks about building the city. Um, and it's, it's sort of interesting because like, you know, that physical first approach, you're not really getting any interaction with the members. And so I, I like this kind of almost like commercial first approach where you're going, uh, you're really hitting on like business use cases and that's like driving um, interaction and trust as you're building up um, essentially lived experience over time. So yeah, I could, I could kind of see this digital first approach building some of that necessary conditions. Um, I guess one follow-up, I'm just curious, have you found, you know, like strong alignment with physical communities already? Like have you already sort of found those value-aligned communities, um, or is that still kind of like a goal of yours? I would say in our generation, um, I would say like millennials and see all of that, like you, you can see that there, there's been a decrease in belonging, uh, in the feeling of belonging, partly attributable probably to the internet in the way it's changing things in terms of how we interact with each other. Um, I do think that living and housing is a big part of the problem. Like imagine housing where you can live in, in, in somewhere that you're close to your friends, right? Imagine some kind of like a small um, villages you can build around, you know, I, I, I don't want to call it communal housing per se because you will have your own like place, you will have your own whatever, but like having communal spaces where you can go and, and hang out without having to like go into a tube for one hour and live in a place that's super crowded and where you hear cars beeping and where you mm-hmm. cannot raise your kids, that is a big problem. Um, today and I think we can do way better in terms of structure institutes so they they allow more for this which is effectively quality of life. Um, yeah, I wanted to just get into a little bit like as we're talking about implementing all of this. Do you guys see the current, let's say, crypto stack as fully ready uh, for implementing Nation Three, or is there anything you're waiting for or wish you had? Um, I know you guys, like especially Luis, you guys have a lot of experience at Aragon, so I'm curious how you see the sort of current technical state of affairs in crypto. I would say DAO infrastructure is getting there, but it still needs way more work uh, in terms of like anonymous voting, um, anonymous DAOs in general. But I'm quite bullish on it because I'm still quite close to Aragon and, and they're working a lot on that infrastructure and thinking that through and how you can use CKS and Arx to have like anonymity at every level. And ultimately, these things are very helpful for us. Like, for example, so judges can make uh, votes anonymously um, and they cannot be bribed. Um, you can think also about citizens making votes in an anonymous way. 
um, and even proposals in like private owned citizens and so forth. So there's a lot of interesting stuff that can happen. Mm. From our end, in terms of product, the product itself, like what is facing to the user is quite simple. Um, so we don't require much more than Ethereum, um, obviously like web technologies. And then once we have subcourts that live in different chains, because we have like basically we have nested courts, the Supreme Court is the ultimate one, but then we can have like nested courts that specialize on things that live in, live in different chains. Then you need some kind of cross-chain bridge. But apart from that, I, I think we're finally there. I think we're finally there in the moment that we can actually build these applications. There is a lot of um, things to be mm. figured out around user experience and like just making people on board into Web3. But we are getting there. Like Rainbow, for example, what an amazing wallet. It's so easy to install. It's crazy. Like you can literally like um, you know get get someone that has never interacted with Web3 or even Web2 to be honest before. And with like five ten minutes on hand holding, you are gonna get them through. It's still hand holding is required, but you know it has improved so much over the years. Yeah, it's really that's that's really cool. Um, and this is this is the stuff I'm getting excited about as we sort of ramp up again for whatever is coming next in crypto. Is for a lot of this stuff to actually be doable. So yeah, it's it's cool to just check with you know different projects with where they're where they're at in that. I'm curious if you guys have much of a technical background it seems like a lot of your interest has has come from sort of philosophical like you know moral ethical questions about about how we want to live but it also seems like you've been around this technology for quite some time so i'm i'm curious if you know what did you come in first like values first or interested in the technology I think it depends who you ask in the community. Um, I think we are, I mean, mostly in the community where we're technical at this stage, just because of how, you know, the, the, the moment that we are in, it's like a lot about the breakthrough. And for that, I think you, you need a lot of technical resources and, and kind of like just um, people working on that. But I think the what differentiates the nation three community uh, from a lot of other communities is that it's a very weird, interesting mix. Like you have a lot of people that are, really into like constitutions or like, um, you know, freedom uh, or philosophy or uh, urban planning, um, obviously into like crypto and Web3, but that's uh, by no means the only thing. It's kind of like a very interesting mix um, of people that are just into basically just creating new nations. And on my side, I guess, um, so I, I don't come from engineering background, as, as many of the community members do, but I guess it's more from a kind of society structuring perspective and, and implementing these checks and balances in the right way and seeing how the the technologies that we do have, having witnessed them, I guess, from initially from the VC perspective, how they come together to enable a lot of these things to exist. And another thing that is interesting is when you think about creating a, a nation state, I've noticed that a lot of it resonates with programming um, and with like software architecture. And if you look at it from that perspective, there are like kind of like a systemic perspective to creating checks and balances, systemic perspective to creating services, to creating economic flows. I think it aligns very well. Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious just, you know, we've been talking about the nation state. Is that like still the term do you think we should use or, you know, the nation state as... Balaji kind of talks about and sovereign individual talks about sort of this concept from, you know, around like post, uh, call it like around 1700. And so I'm kind of curious, like, should we, do you kind of like that term? Do you, do you, what, how do you kind of picture jurisdictions in the future? Do you picture the existing countries still being the main, um, main players and now there's sort of a digital layer on top of them? Or do you see kind of like fragmentation of the existing countries? I see at least the the pillars on which the jurisdiction and the current nation states are built changing quite significantly, because I think historically they've been um, around the notions of patriotism and having to defend your land and a lot of these mm. things that have created the notions of what your nation means and what your nationality means. And that has, I think, created more problems than, than good, right? It's, uh, it's created a lot of rivalry, a lot of um, racism, a lot of really negative stuff has come out of it. And I think as we go forward, these things will diminish in value and other things such as your choices, such as your preferences, your lifestyle and all of these things will emerge to, to replace it. So, you know, the question of whether we'll, we'll keep naming them as nation states is a good one. Um, I don't know. I think maybe with, uh, you know, a few years down the line, we'll, uh, we'll start coming up with different terms. 
I guess for us now, you know, when you're changing the system itself, um, it's useful sometimes to use familiar terms in the beginning because otherwise you're kind of changing too much and then it kind of blows people's <laughs> minds. <laughs> so <laughs> we're trying to it. kind of take a step at a time. Yeah, you don't want to say it's a cool place to hang out with your homies online and there's laws. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly and um to your point anastasia yeah i've been i've been watching the ukrainian russian war fairly closely to kind of get it you know for example these pillars of the nation state and one of them was you know they could just command a huge percentage of the resources in a place and i'm kind of been watching that you know we had a personal connection tim luck lived in in Kyiv for a long time. Um, I, I myself was living in Kyiv uh, before the war. And so, yeah, we, I've been studying that just to see, you know, is the nation state as powerful? Like you guys have, uh, Lewis, for example, alluded to this idea of like nation states sort of crumbling. And so it's been interesting to use that war as an example. I'm kind of curious about your thoughts because it seems like a lot of the Russian community has actually left. It's like a ton of, there's been a huge exodus from Russia. So it seems like it's just inherently more difficult, at least on that dimension, for nation states to command the resources of their country. It seems like people are starting to just leave instead of, you know, patriotically fight for whatever their government has decided to fight over. Exactly. And that's because the, uh, those nation states, such as Russia, they, they fail to adapt to the new changing um, ideas and mentalities of the generations that we have today, right? Those people the younger people that are driven by um, their values and their interests and life goals and, and frankly, just, you know, living life and being a, a citizen for the sake of getting the services that you want and, and being more of a user than a um, maintainer of a state to some extent is mm -hmm. what they fail to see and they fail to adapt to, right? I don't think a nation state needs to expect a, a citizen to give its life to, to protect that state. Um, I think the state needs to provide the services and the user, the citizen, needs to receive the services, give feedback and be able to freely exit and re-enter based on the quality of the services and, and the lifestyle they want at a given stage in life, right? So I think it needs to be much more fluid. And I think the idea is that if you're born in a place, then you're expected to kind of give your life for the motherland. Uh, I, I think we we have to see the end of it at some point soon. And you know, if, if if states fail to adapt to that, then I think they will, as you say, fail to attract the resources and fail to mobilize the resources into the direction they want. And then people will just leave, right? And they will re-enter into states that they align with much more. Yeah, that seems to be what we're seeing, you know, at least in the context of war. I'm kind of curious to dive a little bit into what Lewis said about, you know, nations going bankrupt, obviously a very big theme of sovereign individual um, I'm just curious what you're seeing on taxation. You know, Nation 3 mentions a lot about taxation. Part of the pitch, right, is zero taxes. Um, I'm curious, you know, do you think taxation will be a similar motivation? Um, I mean, Europe already has incredibly high taxes. Uh, and we've seen people in some jurisdictions put up with quite a lot. Like Argentina has been a struggling country for a very, very long time. And yet, <laughs> I don't know, people continue to live there in, in numbers do you think like what do you what do you see kind of driving more adoption of digital services like nation three of digital jurisdictions is it nations going bankrupt or is it just the steady growth of web three over time i think both are very related because if you think about it the more capital that goes into web three and in the last 10 years when web three is that bitcoin is that crypto in general like that it's been the the largest capital formation that's ever happened in our in our lifetimes uh, that, ha that has gone into mm. a place that nation states just don't have jurisdiction over uh, traditional nation states at least and so um, when you think about that all of that is going somewhere where they cannot control it they cannot secure it and if they cannot secure it they cannot really tax it because there's no service that they are giving they are providing to anyone um, that custody crypto because if you custody yourself, there's literally nothing that no argument that can be made. In the case of physical possessions, you can make the case that you know you have physical possession, you have property rights, you have property registry, and that enforcement and, and that registry is being maintained by the enforcement of the nation state uh, by having a police force, by having uh, borders, by having so and all of that and so on. If you are anonymous and you hold crypto mm -hmm. like this, literally the, the argument really weakens there. And so all of this capital has left a place that um, is not covered by traditional nation states at all. And so that has weakened their power to 
exercise um, any sort of control over such a new economy, and new new economy needs new rails. Um, needs, for example, in this case, what we're providing in terms of legal certainty. Um, it's good to have smart contracts, but not everything can be uh, done via smart contracts. And so you sort of need like this kind of like, system mm. of law. Yes, I think one so brain is the other, basically. Uh, I see. So to summarize, like, essentially, capital formation and the level of services will be so much higher in this kind of digital-first approach that it'll just continue to move activity towards it from the old kind of legal legacy system. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Basically, the way I like to look at it is like there's DeFi, and DeFi has taken a lot of capital of traditional markets to markets that are more decent mm-hmm. and transparent. And there's going to be like the law, um, which is going to do exactly the same for, for law. And then you get both kind of like, uh, as Nick Sabo would say, dry code and wet code. So like smart contracts and the legal contracts, and you take those off traditional jurisdictions and you take them onto something new, which is, again, you know, more transparent uh, and way more efficient. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting. And, and Nilrun framed the, the question about taxation around sort of what is going to motivate people to leave traditional jurisdictions and become affiliated with a, you know, digital nation state like Nation 3. Is it going to be primarily you know, economic activity, which obviously has been an incredibly motivating force for moving people for, you know, for <laughs> for all of our history. But I think it's interesting to consider that question in ter- uh, with relation to some of what Anastasia was saying about what keeps people, you know, fighting wars for their country and, um, you know, these, these patriotic feelings that are somewhat different than just where do I want to live? Where does it make economic sense to live? And I'm curious if you guys have thoughts about whether or not people will take that sort of pride in some sort of digital community and if it'll be possible to replicate any of that and if if it will be necessary. Are there some benefits to that sort of feeling of community that isn't only based on choice? I mean, you know, I've lived all over the world and there's something about having moved around a lot that actually has made me feel more American. And it's not like I think America is is perfect or even great, but it feels innately a part of me. And I think it's while everyone moving to one place can be an incredible organizing principle and have people find like-minded individuals, is there can uh, something like Nation Theory replicate that that sense of community? Well, I guess that is what America is today as well, right? At some point, sure. it was a bunch of people <laughs> yeah, have sure. moved there because they were driven by the same values of trying to explore a new land because they were not happy with what they had and, and, and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So so to some extent, I think, yes, right? It's, it's a little bit, um, again, a question of timing. So in the beginning, once you just establish a city, you will probably have people who have moved there and... You know, they're, they're connected mostly by those values that they have formed online. But then as they start living together, it, it starts creating a, a community feeling on different levels as well, including that of a local sense. And these things, I think, are inevitable. It's not even a question of whether you want to replicate it or not. I think we as human beings just are, you know, we're very social beings and, and that's how it works. As we are surrounded by someone in a physical realm, we will definitely develop new um new values new cultural uh, identity that will emerge so yeah i think for sure we'll see we'll see that being formed one great difference though is around um going to to war for your country and kind of like that that, that level of patriotism like i think that level of patriotism was needed by tra- traditional national states and to some extent this is still needed today because of the need to wage war to keep your borders and therefore to keep your nation state because otherwise you just literally ceased and in digital communities, it's a little bit different because your physical selves will never be threatened in digital communities. And and therefore, I don't think it goes to that level in which the nation state needs to have like propaganda machines and needs to have all of this sort of yeah like propaganda to essentially like keep people um, keep people able to wage war in case uh, it's needed because in the digital realm we just don't don't wage wars that threaten you physically. I mean, you might wage, be engaged in digital warfare. Exactly, though, exactly. Right? 
I, I'm, we have our hacker army. Well, I, you know, are you, here's the important question. Is Nation 3 going to have a World Cup team in 10 years? I mean, actually, a lot of the funny thing is that even with the Olympics and stuff like that, you don't necessarily need to be like a recognized traditional nation state to participate. So we'll, we'll keep that thought there uh, in case it's useful at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, thanks. I mean, this has been awesome about Nation 3. Uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask a couple more general questions about DAOs and, and a little bit about Aragon. I think that when I talk to non-technical crypto people about what Web3 has to offer, a lot of times DAOs are something that really excite people about a different way to organize and make decisions. And then sometimes they'll ask me, can you name any really successful DAOs? Or like what have what businesses are now operating as DAOs that are really impressive. And sometimes I find myself stumbling where it seems like something that seems great in theory. And I look around for practical examples of things that are really successful and it's, it's hard to find them. It seems there's so many stumbling blocks, both technologically and just in a decision-making process um, for DAOs. So I'm, I would just like to hear more about you guys have so much experience with this. What are some of the advantages or disadvantages of operating as a DAO, and what do you think are some of the most successful um, organizations to come out of this model? I would say today Bitcoin still is the most successful DAO, and I think the definition of DAO has changed um, a lot, and it is still changing. Like DAOs are still in their teenage period, so they are trying to figure out what their personality is. But if you really think about the the very uh, the very fundamental definition of a DAO. Bitcoin is exactly a DAO. It's just a DAO that doesn't have uh, a lot of, or, or almost like no wet code embedded. It's all like dry code. It's all like a very, there's a very thin surface for um, what it can do. But what it wants to do, it does very well. It coordinates people to get computers around the world to mine and to kind of like just produce new Bitcoin blocks and, mm-hmm. and create the security. And it does that in a completely decentralized, autonomous manner and also quite organized. So in that sense, I think it's still the most successful DAO. Um, to some extent, you know, a blockchain is a DAO per se. Uh, when we think about DAOs that live on Ethereum, for example, which is kind of like the very specific definition of DAO that we have today, like a group of people that kind of like just create something around smart contracts um, and organize around them, we see protocol DAOs as the most successful ones today, I think. So like if you think about almost any protocol out there being like the central app or whatever, they have a DAO behind them that is maintaining it. Um, and so... I think still there's a long way to go. Most DAOs are today are not really very autonomous, um, and very few are actually organized. But that's that's coming. Like you know, it's, it's basically where what we're seeing today is like the creation of the corporation back in the day, right? Um, and these things take time, and we're actually seeing this evolution happen way faster than the one of the corporation. I would say the corporation peaked not long ago in terms of functionality, and then we started seeing the side effects and the drawbacks and, and DAOs are taking way shorter to develop. So I think the next like, you know, 10 years, like I see no reason why a lot of the things that today are not possible um, are made possible by DAOs because they enable uh, kind of like common good coordination at scale. Mm. And do you think for DAOs to kind of continue proceeding, are there technical barriers now that you see? Or do you think it's more like a social kind of like mental change where participants need to think of DAOs as kind of being able to take over some of these functions that maybe corporations were handling before? Is it more social or technical, this kind of limitation? I'm still frustrated by uh, how relatively slow it is to iterate in the DAO realm. I think still systems for better permission management, because if you think about it, a DAO is a social graph with permission management. And so like uh, the way we looked at it on yeah. Aragon back in the day was like, all right, we're going to build an OS for uh, a permission graph. And then with this, you can like, you know, you can create a voting app. This voting app can have permission to trigger like finance transfers. But then you can like also plug like another five apps to create your custom governance process. Um, and it will work the same. And it will be like kind of like uh, Lego pieces that you can like um, plug together. And I think still the industry is only starting to understand this model. I think once we can properly leverage this model, we can actually experiment with governance at the speed of software. And then I think we're going to see a Cambrian explosion of, of DAOs um, and we're going to see what works and what not. On the other side, though, there's still a social mm. coordination issue, definitely. Um, they go very, very, very well together, right? Like the social behavior informs technology that gets built. The technology that gets built enables new social behaviors and saves them. 
it's a thing that got really uh really together and what we're seeing today again is like a teenage uh teenage era of DAOs in which you know people are some people are losing their kind of like their belief on DAOs and they are just like you know saying it doesn't work it's too slow contributors don't care or whatever others will keep pushing and we'll find what works out yeah i love this idea of uh the permissive permission social graph it's really fascinating um, one question on just like Aragon and how, I mean, obviously you, you worked on Aragon, co-founder of it. Um, how, how did Nation 3 evolve out of Aragon? And, you know, Aragon has its court system that you mentioned. There was some demand there. Um, yeah. So what's like the, how do you see kind of the evolution from working on Aragon to launching Nation 3? Yeah. So I always wanted to see uh, this kind of like cloud nation slash network state uh, flourish since the time that I discovered Bitcoin. And then when we launched Aragon, it had sort of like two pieces. Um, one was the, the DAO framework, and then the other one was like a decentralized jurisdiction for DAOs. But then over time, it became hmm. super clear that it's impossible to focus on these two things at the same time because they are such um, complex things. And so Aragon in the end uh, was focused on, on DAOs exclusively. And that per se is a massive scope. So it's quite hard to even focus on DAOs per se. So like now it's more like specifically like round DAO framework. And and on the other hand, like, you yeah. know, once once I stopped working in day to day of, of Aragon, I took some time to, to think and then um and then eventually like uh Anastasia and I and, and some friends just thought that the world needed uh a good cloud nation and that we wanted to like, you know, ten years down the road living uh, in a nation that would be different to the ones we have today. And then eventually, after that, we started thinking, okay, what is the core service that a nation state should provide? And then only after that, we realized, oh, it's a system of law and that requires a core service. Um, and so obviously, like, I had a bunch of learnings from launching our own court and a bunch of things that didn't work out because in the end, our own court um, isn't really used and, and it's kind of like there, but, but it's not very widely used. Uh, just like other um, court systems that have been tried on, on Ethereum, like Kleros. And so, yeah, I took a lot of learnings from that. And, and now I think that write-offs are, uh, are de definitely better in terms of the, the use case. And, and also in terms of not launching a court system with a system of law, I think that was one of the issues that we had. Now they are together. Like the court is only a component within a system of law. But I think both are required to, to work for it to work. Mm, yeah, really fascinating. And yeah, we had similar conversations, my friends and I, when we were talking about like how you move to fully decentralized apps, like a decentralized Airbnb, a decentralized Uber. It's like, well, there's always going to be uh, disputes and you're always going to need to have a system of law and then you're going to need to have courts. And so, yeah, that's that's kind of what really interested me about Nation 3 when I came across it. I was like, okay, this, this is clearly trying to solve that piece. Um, I was just, yeah, curious to think, uh, it's been a really good conversation because it's helped me think about, you know, what comes first. And it seems like there actually is enough demand already for doing kind of a, a fully digital court system. And then the kind of the decentralized apps can build up around that over time. So, yeah, really, really fascinating there. Yeah, I mean, this has been a really wonderful conversation and I think has answered a ton of questions I've had. But before we go, I wanted to give a chance for you guys to to say I think Nation 3 is launching a couple initiatives in the next couple weeks. So I um, wanted to give you guys a chance to, to talk about that specifically, if you like. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the next uh, most important milestone for us is, is the launch of the jurisdiction, which includes the, the constitution, the court. So if anybody wants to, to check that out, that would be really great. So far until tomorrow, the constitution is still open for, for feedback. We're trying to make it as open as possible for the broader Web3 community to give feedback and, and kind of opt into it. Um, and then well, tomorrow... it'll be by the time this is out, it'll no longer be tomorrow. So you missed your oh, chance, right. listeners. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, but yeah, as, as of um, Friday, the constitution will be will be frozen. So we'll, we have received lots of feedback from from different community members, both inside Nation Three and, and outside. Um, and then um, and then it will be a period of voting to to enact that as well as to elect the judges um, and a bunch of these things. So it will be super exciting to see how how that goes. And um, and I would say, you know, for, for testing out the the early um, phase of the of the jurisdiction, we are super open for feedback. So if anybody wants to, to check that out, that will be really great. It's all on the Nation3 website, nation3.org. 
Yeah, we'll include some links in the show notes to that and the, the manifesto. And you know what? Once we're done recording, we'll go do some tweets to, to go check out the Constitution so that uh, people will <laughs> look great. at it before this is live. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you, uh, Luis Anastasia, for, for coming on the show. This has been such a fun conversation, and I think that this, you know, is, is one of the most exciting, highest ceiling projects out there. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to following it and seeing your guys' development. Thank you, guys. Thank you for the thoughtful questions. That was really, really great. And I, th- I think it made us um, think about some new angles as well. So we'll probably continue the discussion <laughs> as <Great>. well. <laughs> yeah, please. Uh, all right. Well, um, unless there's anything else, uh, thank you again. And to all our listeners, we'll see you next time on The Network Age. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Network Age. It'll really help us to keep getting our ideas out there, getting you know great guests, and giving you what you want if you can just help us with a few things. Uh, subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, give us a good rating if you liked it. You know, Hit that five stars. And our Twitters are in the show notes for me, Bitchell, and Nilrun. So follow us, retweet, promote the show, and we will keep giving you that amazing Network Age content that you love. <laughs>